Welcome to this week's episode of Startups for the Rest of Us. Thanks again for joining me this week. This is the show where we look at ambitious yet sane approaches to building startups. It's not the Silicon Valley approach, raising buckets of money, not having any customers. It can be bootstrapped or mostly bootstrapped, but these are capital efficient businesses that may not change the entire world, but they're likely to change our little corner of it. I'm your host, Rob Walling, and today I have the pleasure of speaking with Dan Norris. This was such a good conversation, I let it run a lot longer than most Startups for the Rest of Us episodes. Dan and I have known each other, I don't even know now, probably probably a decade is a little long, but nine, eight or nine years. He and I have only met in person once, but I have followed his journey. He's written several books. You'll hear me talk about a few of them in our conversation. And he went from having a couple failed SaaS efforts to then starting a productized service that grew quickly and he sold to GoDaddy. And now he runs a brewery, a very successful brewery doing north of $10 million a year in revenue down in Australia. Dan and I talk through success and exits and what changed in his and my life after we sold our companies. Dan actually turns the table on me towards the end of the interview, probably about 40, 50 minutes in and starts asking me questions about selling drip and my thoughts on on all kinds of things that that I think will be interesting for you to hear. I gave a lot of thoughts that I maybe haven't said in public before, and I appreciated that Dan was willing to, to come on the show and spend spend over an hour with me. Before we dive into this conversation, you should go to microconfremote.com if you're an early stage SaaS founder. Microconf Remote is happening in just a couple weeks towards the end of March. And we are digging in to five early stage marketing approaches for SaaS. Each keynote is going to be a case study with numbers from a founder who has done this approach. So we're going to be covering approaches like an AppSumo deal or a product hunt launch. And again, we have actual founders, real life SaaS founders who have have done this within the past few years, have had success at it, and they're going to share their numbers and their thoughts on what they did right, what they did wrong. I'm really excited about this approach. It's it's almost going to be like a bunch of mini workshops. I think it'll be very, very valuable for you, especially if you're, let's say, pre-5 or 10K of MRR, all the way from idea up to, say, 5 or 10K. It's for that earlier stage where you're trying to get traction and you need maybe a one-off marketing approach to help you start to get some revenue and, and kickstart your customer count. So microconfremote.com if you're interested. And with that, let's dive into my conversation with Dan. Mr. Dan Norris, thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me, mate. It's been been a while since we've talked. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, it's been at least a couple years. I was looking back. So you were on this podcast, episode 183, Five Startup Rules to Live By with Dan Norris. And we were talking, I think we were talking about your book, Seven Days Startup. And that was, to give people context, today's episode 539. So it's, it's been a minute, sir. And then last time you and I met in person was uh, really the only time I think we have is a DCBKK in 2014, if you believe it, back when we used to do in-person events. You remember those days? Yeah, that was fun. I haven't been, I think they, I don't know if they, they did one last couple of years, but I, I went to most of them. That, they were always good. Yeah, I meant to, to say congratulations on the podcast too. I can't, I, it blows my mind people who do that many podcasts. Like I had a podcast early on and I think I got to 100 and then I was like, nah, this, I just lost energy for it. It's such a difficult thing to just keep doing and doing. So well done with that. 
Yeah, thanks. I mean, I think it's, you know, Mike and I did it for about 450 episodes and then and then he stepped back to focus on, on his other stuff. So I've been doing it for about the last hundred. And I think for me, A, I, I do enjoy it. And I think if I didn't enjoy it, I just wouldn't do it. But B, it also became that that streak, you know, where literally every week for like 10 years, a new episode's come out. And that that's a point of, I think, both of pride, but also a point of commitment for me that I just want, I want it to be out every week. And also, frankly, the feedback, right? The fact that there are people listening and that I get emails and tweets and whatever else, comments that are like, hey, this is good. This is not great job here, whatever. That helps me realize, oh, this is having an impact. Because if, again, if it wasn't having, if people were listening, but no one cared, that would also probably make me stop doing it. Yeah, that's right. I always love that about podcasts. We do one for the brewery, which again, I've kind of dropped the ball on because I just kind of, it, I just find it difficult to keep doing them, but we're going to do, we're going to do another series of them. But I find that when when we go to like beer events in person, people are always talking about the podcast, even though out of all the content we do, it's got by far the smallest audience. Yeah, but I've found that it tends to be more engaged than written content, right? Because people hear you in their earbuds. It's very personal. So. A, I'm going to say, you know, you were complimenting me on the podcast. Congrats. And I'm super jealous of you, man. Six books. You've written six books. And we will talk about your sixth book today called Compound Marketing. I want to talk a little bit about you selling your company before we get into there. But if folks haven't read The Seven Day Startup, which I think was what your first or second book, I would recommend they, they go check that out now, as well as Compound Marketing. They can buy those on Amazon or wherever good books are sold. I actually wrote the forward to Seven Day Startup, didn't I? Yeah, and I, I don't think I've ever been congratulated on or, or told people were jealous for writing six books. I don't think anyone else really wants to write six books. <laughs> nothing to be, normally, normally when people say they're jealous, it's because they because they get to work in a brewery and drink beer all day. Not not that I got to write six books. Right, six books. Yeah, no doubt. Oh man, I mean, I was telling you before we hit record that I'm working on my my third book, and it's just. It's just tough. It's really hard. And and every day I show up and I either write something and I feel like, ah, this isn't good enough. That wasn't enough. Or I don't write anything. And then I feel like crap that I, <laughs> that I didn't move the ball forward. So I just can't imagine having written six books. I mean, you seem to, it doesn't seem to be that hard for you. Or is it just that you don't care that it's that hard and you push through? No, it's not that hard for me. But, but I think I also cheat a little bit I don't read a lot of books. I don't research a lot. I don't. I don't write a lot about. You know, I don't kind of dig into other companies too much. I, most of my books are just if I feel like I've got something interesting to say about what I'm working on and how you know how that can affect other founders, then I'll write something. And if I don't, then I won't write something. And it just so happens that I've had six different topics that kind of popped into my head that I felt that I've got enough interesting things in there to write about. With compound marketing, I did look at other companies more so than. I normally do because I, I kind of felt like it would improve the book overall if I didn't just talk about myself the whole time. So that was a, it was a fair bit more work than other books. It's also longer than the other books. The other books are pretty short, but it does come easily. Like like it's getting harder and harder. But some some of the books, like I think Seven Day Startup, I wrote in a, like a week and a half. Some of like there was chunks of uh, the brewery book and content machine that I wrote like on on flights. I'd write, write like ten thousand words in one kind of six hour stint. So there was things like that that I've been able to do that make it a lot easier for me than normal people. But yeah, it's still not super easy to write books. Well, congrats on that. Um, I'd love to talk a little bit, kick us off with some conversation before we dive into compound marketing 
about your sale of WP Curve. So WP Curve subscription WordPress support service, a fixed monthly price for unlimited jobs. I believe if memory serves me, that was the first business of that model that I had ever seen. Because now there's, you know, there's like Design Pickle and there's this model for a bunch of of kind of consulting-ish stuff that you used to hire freelancers for. Did you come up with the this idea of this fixed monthly price for unlimited jobs? Yeah, I think so. As far as I'm aware, the idea of a recurring kind of business wasn't something I came up with, but there was a lot of talk at the time about, you know, recurring software businesses. And, I, and that's what I wanted. Like, I, you know, I, list, I used to listen to your podcast all the time. I, all I wanted was to start a software company. I had an agency that was just a terrible business. And I tried and tried to, to do software and I just couldn't make it work. I just found it so hard. Just couldn't, couldn't come up with the right idea. I'm also not a developer. So I, I just think it's just not a good idea to start a software business if you're not a developer. So many, so many reasons I couldn't do it. And I was looking for a way to just selfishly start a business that was more like a startup than anything I'd done before. It wasn't like I'd really like gone out and done a whole bunch of customer interviews and been like, this is what people want. Like, this is a gap in the market. It wasn't like that at all. It was, I had a developer. I wanted to keep working with him. I was, you know, a few weeks away from needing to go back and get a job after seven years as an entrepreneur. I didn't want to do that. And so I I just said, well, what if I combine the two together? Because I've got someone who can do the work. And if I make it recurring, it'll be growth and it'll keep me motivated. It'll be more like a startup and ultimately it will be worth more. And that's what I did. And it worked pretty well. And a lot of other people followed, which is great. I, you know, I encourage everyone else to follow as well in my writing and writing the book and giving people a framework for doing it and all that stuff. And yeah, it was a good time. And you wound up selling that. You had a co-founder and you guys wound up selling that to GoDaddy. What was it about four or five years ago? Yeah, it was 2015, 16, something like that. Was it that long ago? Yeah, five years ago. Now, talk to me a little bit about that. I know that you can't talk about the exact sale price, but was it more of, you know, there's the aqua hires where it's like they absorb your team and and it's a lower purchase price point, or was it like a was it a strategic acquisition that really fit into, you know, a desperate need that GoDaddy had? I mean, can you give us any idea of what that acquisition looked like? Yeah, it, it was a weird time. I was thinking about this because I thought you'd ask me about it. And I haven't been asked about it since since then. My life now has nothing to do with this world. So it's, you know, I had to kind of reflect on it. But so basically what happened was me me and my co-founder, we were kind of getting, like, like we never worked together. We were on opposite sides of the world. We didn't know each other before I started this business. I started it by myself and then brought him in via my blog, you know, kind of randomly very early on because I realized I couldn't run a business that ran 24-7. And we, we did a pretty good job, you know, making that all work. But it was, the business was kind of almost too easy in a sense that it was like we had people do the work and I did content from time to time, but there was no real work. There wasn't a huge amount of work in like managing the business like there is with my current business. And Alex did a lot of that stuff, but neither of us really worked full time on the business. We, we, we both had other things going on. So we kind of started thinking about the idea of selling and we, we had conversations with the guys from Envato they reached out to us and they were like, oh, we're interested in doing something. And we kind of gave them all our information, had calls with them and all that. And then after that, they were like, oh, now nah, you know what, I'm not keen. And I kind of forgot about all of that, but I, I was listening to your episode with Josh Pigford and I was like, oh, yeah, that's right, that exact same thing happened to us. And when that happened, we'd, Alex had reached out to GoDaddy at one point and kind of just had a contact who happened to work in the M&A section or something. I can't remember exactly how it happened, but... After the, the Envato thing fell through, we were like, you know what, we were kind of getting excited about the idea of selling this. 
So we, we proactively went back to GoDaddy and said, we were just about to sell this. We, you know, it's fallen through. Are you guys interested in talking? And they said, yeah, we're interested in talking. We, I flew over to California. We met with them. Alex handled most of it. I, I, I'm still kind of unclear about why, like the meetings were so strange to me. I was in this, this kind of this mode of working for myself in Australia. And then we go to this, back to this massive meeting room where I used to live in corporate world. And it was just weird. I don't, I don't know. I don't really know why they were buying it. I, you know, I don't, I don't know if, if it turned out well for them. Like, I don't, I don't think it's, it exists anymore. I think that's pretty common. You know, they, they kind of said they wanted to get into this recurring services and, and they wanted the team and all that kind of stuff. But this, this is a gigantic company. I'm sure they could have gone and hired a bunch of people in the Philippines. And in the end, I think they, they got rid of their Philippines team anyway, which was, you know, the, the bones of what WP Curve was. So uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I don't know exactly why. I, I think at the time it was it was one person in there decided they wanted to buy it, and, and we decided we want to sell. And I don't know how much more complicated it was than that. And what did that do for you in terms of of finances? Like you sold to GoDaddy, so obviously it was probably some life changing money. And oftentimes I'll say, look, a quarter million bucks in a sale is is life changing money, right? If you've never had more than ten or twenty grand in, in a bank account, for you was it enough money that you didn't have to work again, or was it like, man, I can take a lot of years off and really kind of you know figure out what my next thing is? Well, yeah, like uh, like we can't talk about it because of NDA. It has been so long. I think it'd probably be very unlikely to get sued. Sure. I wouldn't describe it as life-changing. I mean, it's more than a quarter million dollars, but I, would, I, I wouldn't describe it as life-changing. It was funny. It was good for me because I was ready to leave and it took me a while to work out my next move. But in hindsight, I was already working on my next move. The, the day I met with GoDaddy was the day we opened the brewery and I just thought it was a small thing, but it eventually turned into a much bigger thing. So I was, I, I was on a path. I didn't want to move to America. There's no way I was going to keep working. You know, I wanted to get out of the business, so I wasn't going to do a thing where I'd stay there for five years. So it was perfect for me. I just got a bunch of cash and literally left the next day. But it, yeah, I mean, in terms of life changing, at the time I was renting a unit around the corner from where I am now. It was costing me 540 bucks a week to rent it. And then when I got this money from the sale, I bought a house just around the corner from where I was renting and I didn't quite have enough. Like I basically put all of it into the house, didn't do anything else with it. I didn't quite have enough to, to buy all of it. And so I had to get a mortgage for about 300 grand and the repayments on the mortgage ended up being exactly 540 bucks a week. So for me, it was literally not life-changing at all. I just moved up the street and instead of renting my house, I was owning my house. I mean, I live in, a, in an amazing location. I never would have been able to buy a house in this spot. I'm like 50 meters to the beach in one of the best suburbs in Queensland. It's, it's amazing. I never would have been able to do that without the money, but I, I still would be living here. I would, just, I would just be paying the rent, I think. Yeah, no, that's that's funny how that how that works. And it turns it turns out that also, like when I bought this place, it was I thought I was buying at the top of the market. I bought it for what they were asking. I didn't try to bargain. I just thought if I don't buy it now, this money's going to lose its value, and I'm, this, the the property's going to go up, and I'm not going to get in. So I bought it for what I thought was a lot of money, and since then it's gone absolutely nuts. And that's just a fluke. But yeah, it's worth a lot more now. And that's, that's kind of how it goes. I mean, I was, I was telling someone the other day, I, after I sold drip, had a lot of money coming to the bank account and it gave me the luxury to dabble in some small things that I probably either wouldn't have had the time or really wouldn't have had enough money 
to dabble in before or to make it worthwhile. And so- But was it, were they valuable things? Like for me, when I dabble in small things, it always ends up being, a, a lot of the time ends up being a waste of time. Oh, no. I mean, like I had not bought any cryptocurrency before 2016. When I sold Drip, I was like, I have some money to play around with. Like I don't buy individual stocks. I tend to be, I buy assets, you know, I buy like index funds and stuff. I'm going to throw like 2%, maybe 3% of our net worth into crypto. You know, and that that was 2% or 3% at that point after selling a company like that was not inconsequential amount of money. And then, and I, I kept saying, it's either going to go to zero or it's going to hundred X, right? It's like an angel investment. And that was where I felt like I had the luxury to do that. And of course that, that has panned out well. And I feel like it's similar to you. Cause you're like, well, I, you know, I wouldn't have had the money I'd be renting. So you would be living in the same place, but you wouldn't have almost stumbled into making, you've made a bunch of money on your house now, right? In equity. And there's, I feel like there's a weird luxury you have. It, it is It is just a weird, a house is a weird thing to make money on. Like it's the best thing to make money on because it's, you know, you don't have to pay tax on it in Australia. I don't know what it's like over there, but you can, with houses, if you're living it here, you don't have to pay tax on capital gains. Oh man, that's amazing. Like at the moment, the market's going nuts around here, but if I sell my house here, I'm just going to have to buy another one somewhere else and the real estate agents and the lawyers are going to get rich. So it doesn't feel, it doesn't feel like my life is changing, but, you know, obviously it'd be wrong to say, I'm, I'm not in a different position that I was. And yeah, and I, I think like in terms of how much we sold it for, I was really happy with what we sold it for. It was sort of, it was in line with, you know, I've heard you talk about kind of smaller software companies and the kind of multiples they sell for. And it was in line with that, which was my thinking the whole time was if I had an agency that was, you know, turning over a million dollars a year and say making 300 grand in a call it profit for the founders, and that's basically what it was. We were turning over about a million dollars a year. Founders were earning about 150k each, and there, you know there wasn't much left. You know, if, if I had sold an agency like that, I'd be lucky to sell it for a small profit multiple. And I always thought if I create a business that is more like a startup, it should be worth a small revenue multiple. And that's ultimately what what we got. Yeah, and I think that's pretty good. Where, you know, when when you talk to other people with services businesses that is reasonably unusual. And I think the model was good. The team was good, but the brand, I think I always just come back to the brand because same as our current business, there's breweries that do more volume than us that are worth almost zero. And there's ones that, you know, are worth hundred million dollars plus that don't do much more volume, but just have an amazing brand. So it's just such an important thing that you just can't ignore. Yeah. And that, I mean, that actually is a great segue into your book, Compound Marketing, because you use a lot of, of the elements in this book to build WP Curve and to build Black Ops Brewing. The four things you touch on in Compound Marketing are brand, storytelling, content, and community. And when you put that in a sentence, you say, build a brand and tell a story via content to your community. So, I know the story of, of WP Curve and I sat and watched, watched you build it and watched you, you were telling your story and being transparent in the entrepreneurial community and, and the word spread. And then people said, WP Curve is cool. And obviously you got enough subscriptions that you were turning over a million bucks a year, like you were saying. How did you apply this to Black Hops? Yeah, well, it's kind of funny because like I've, I've written the book now and it's, you know, it seems quite simple to follow that sentence and do that. But I didn't really realize, like there were things I did realize. One thing I realized was, in the online space, this kind of way of building companies was happening a lot. You know, you had Josh from Bear Metrics. That you know, there was Nathan Barry. You, you were doing it. You, there was there was so many people 
There was, you know, the Pat Flynn with the income reports. There were so many people doing this kind of stuff in the online world that it wasn't unusual anymore. It was quite normal. But in physical businesses like breweries, this was very rare. And I I knew that coming into it because we had the problem of needing to build a brewery, not having any idea how to do it. And we got on Google to have a look at what was around and just couldn't find anything. You know, it was hard to get any information. And so to me, that was a really good opportunity. And I'd always thought in the online world, when you do it, it, there's just so much noise and so much competition. It's even if you're reasonably good at it. And and I wouldn't describe myself as particularly great at doing any form of content. Like you look at some of the guys who do this really well, you know, people are really, really good at this in, in the kind of online entrepreneur space. But, you know, a little bit less competition in the physical business area and, and I thought we would really stand out. And so I just applied all of that to Black Ops and we, we had a podcast, a blog, I wrote a book for Black Ops. You know, we started releasing all of our recipes. We've done homebrew comps where we actually release our beer for people to brew at home. You know, we've revealed our finances. We've done equity crowdfunding where we, we, we reveal all of our back-end information, just just everything calls with investors we published. We, we, we just applied all the stuff that is not weird in the online world to the to the offline world. And, and I, I thought that would be personally rewarding for me and I thought it would be good for the business. And, and it was because it gave us a bit of a point of difference. But, I, you know, I wasn't at the time, I wasn't like, I'm going to do these four things. It was just like, well, we've got a cool story. I know we need to build a good brand because I'd learned that with WP Curve and how important that, that was. And I'd sort of begun to fall in love with design after many years of, of doing it for other people. And the content was just in my nature. It was just something I enjoyed in, enjoyed doing. And so I just kind of did it naturally. And the community building side, again, it was sort of like, you know, taking that income report idea to this this offline business where we've got all these different opportunities to build these little communities, whether it be Facebook groups or social media or, you know, in person at the tap rooms and really just combine all of these things together. And, and I didn't do it consciously, you know, from a point of view of having the four kind of platforms, but reflecting on it, you know, I kind of just did the same thing I'd always done. It just has worked particularly well now and uh, made sense to put it into a list of four things and, and write a book about it. And when you talked about creating content, the way you described it just now was a lot about transparency of like, this is how we're building the business. And I think that can work, but also like you're building a brewery. And although I will drink beer, I don't particularly care about how to build a brewery because I'm not going to build one, you know, it's just for me personally. So do you find that when you create content about how we're building the brewery with the transparency that it it applies to other brewers (laughs) and other people that want to start a brewery business? So it's not all about transparency. There has to be other types of content, right? What what type of content are you creating with Black Hops today that is applying more to your end users? Yeah, I I mean, the the end users, the thing they love the most is just every single beer we put out. So, you know, so we put a lot of effort into, and I consider that, to be content in a way like we put a lot of effort into the names the designs all of that stuff to do with launching a beer so our like our community our facebook group and the online social media stuff is all about launching new beers and and we'll go to extreme lengths to make sure we put out something that people are going to like so we do a lot of that you'd be surprised how how many people who are really sort of core craft beer lovers are actually interested in the, the behind the scenes side of things as well. Like because we've done the equity crowdfunding, we've also got 600 investors. So the, the 600 people that invested and, and the 3,000 people in our Facebook group, all these people are super interested in what's going on. In fact, the, the, we just talked about the podcast before. I had a guy um, post in the group just a couple of days ago who's, who's a super fan, one of our investors, one of our early crowdfunding people is in the group. He's a, you know, I guess you would call him an influencer in, in the craft beer world. And he, he put a thread in the group saying, 
can you guys get back on the podcast? You're doing this new project. I'd love to hear about it. So yeah, a lot of people do like hearing about that sort of thing, but there's a lot more we can do. Like two weeks ago, I did a photo competition and I did that not in our own group, but in a beer photographer's group. So this was a photographer's group who are often sent free beer by people to take photos. And we never do that because we don't, we don't really send out free beer to influencers, that kind of thing. You know, we just want to make a good product and people pay for it. But I thought I'd do a competition in that group because I, I really liked seeing the photos I was seeing in there. And I thought, oh, it'd be cool if they took some photos of our beers. And this competition went, you know, really, really well. It was a, it was a new audience. There was 50 people signed up for it. There was over 50 photos submitted, a lot of which we can use on our own social media and help out our own social media. But it's also helping that kind of part of the craft beer community that are really passionate enough to like spend hours and hours taking a photo of one beer. And for us, it's it's really good content. We'll keep sharing it over the next couple of months. It becomes a cool story. And that kind of stuff that you're doing for the really core people ends up resulting in a brand that other people enjoy for reasons that they may not understand like the like the average there's there's a lot of love out there for our brand the average drinker who finds our beer in a big retailer you know may not listen to the podcast but like we do get the benefit from them of them loving the brand you know because there's a lot of love for it that's kind of comes up through this grassroots community yeah and you know a founder who's listening to this maybe a SaaS founder might be thinking well you know, I, I'm more of a direct response marketer. I'm going to do ads, SEO. I'm going to convert people through a funnel in essence, which is totally valid as well, right? It's a different type of approach. What I've found is that coupling those two things, they're multiplicative. That when I look back at the businesses I built pre-drip, they were all very direct response. I'll just, I like to call them left brain, like engineering type stuff. It's like, I'm going to SEO this. I'm going to drive traffic and go through funnel. I start, And I started building Drip the same way originally, but quickly realized that actually having a brand, telling a story and having a community built around it. And of course, I already, you know, was part of the MicroConf community and, and had a voice through the podcast. But that gave us a lot, that gave us faster growth. And it gave us a lot of, I guess, like, maybe there's some empathy, there's some just just a, people like what you're doing, and they, and they like your your product. And I think that's a big part of, of building a brand. And then moving forward, now I'm working, of course, on MicroConf, Tiny Seed and this podcast, all three of those are all about content, community, and of course, there's storytelling elements, right? And without that, like I see people try to launch a conference event or a an accelerator or a podcast or even a, you know, a SaaS app for the most part. But I see folks try to do that without thinking about the brand, without connecting with a community. And it's it's really an uphill battle at that point, you know, because you're just kind of scratching and clawing and you're you're more of a commodity, a commodity player. So does that ring true to you? And do you feel like you know, again, commodity businesses. I mean, I interviewed a couple founders maybe three months ago who do have, it's a geolocation service API, and it is more of a commodity business. So I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but I do think that it puts a ceiling on your growth or on the level you can get to. And some people, that's fine, man. Building a $300,000 ARR SaaS company that throws off 250K in net profit, it's a great business. But in my shoes, I want to build, I'm ambitious. I want to build seven, eight figure businesses. I think some you know, folks out there want to too. I think it's very, very hard to build something into the seven figure run rate without some type of, of brand and community. What are your thoughts on all that? I definitely agree with your last statement. But, I, you know, I, I, don't, I don't tend to think there's one way to do things. Like it, it doesn't really ring true to me that combining the two works only because I've never really been able to do the, 
the paid ads and the the direct response and all of that stuff. It's just never been something I've been good at. I, I haven't had any success with it, so I've I've taken this this other approach. If you can do both, then I think that's that's probably good. But I, I think you know I think that stuff can distract people a lot as well. I suppose you could say the same about content. But like I, I used to before WP Curve, I used to have a site that ranked number one in Google, and I bought it from a guy who was just a just mad about SEO and, and the content, there was no content on there. It was like, it was like a one page website. Uh, this is quite a while ago. And it used to rank number one in Australia for website design and, and web developer and all these terms. And I, and I bought it off him thinking, this is going to really change my business. Cause I was at the time I was paying for AdWords. I had a local consultancy and I was paying $5 a click for some of these words that this guy was ranking number one for in the free listings. And it didn't really change my business that much. I, I got a whole bunch of leads I tried to change the website so it was, you know, the brand was better on there and, you know, we appealed to sort of a higher level audience, but it just didn't really work. Like I got a lot of, you know, on paper, it looked pretty good and it wasn't, you know, it wasn't a bad website for me to have bought, but it didn't really realize what I thought its value would be because the the quality of what was coming through there was just nowhere near what I was getting through my natural organic channels. And, you know, at that time, I think I wrote a post, a lot of the posts I wrote back in that time have all been removed because the WP Curve site's not there anymore, But and neither was my old personal site. I got rid of it all. But I, I wrote a, a post at the time about SEO, which was basically called the content-driven SEO or my approach to content-driven SEO or something like that. And, and I basically just completely gave up on this idea of SEO. Like at the time I was doing, you know, you, you mentioned Travis when we were talking before. Like I, I was talking to Travis. I was doing the kind of stuff he used to do with with all of like the legitimate SEO type things that used to be what SEO people did. And I just ditched all of that and just went all in on content. And that was my approach with WP Curve. And that's my approach with the current business. And my my business now is ranking better. You know, it ranks for all kinds of weird words that you never would expect a small brewery to rank for. Like if you, if you type in like stout, you know, in Australia or stout and porter or brewery or local Gold Coast brewery or like any of these terms we rank first for. And it's not because we've done any SEO. We haven't done anything analytical. It's just just doing the content. And for me, that's a better approach. I think if you can do both, it can be very powerful. But there's also not one way to do something either. Like I've always just been a fan of doing what works. Like if, you, if you're listening to this and you're doing, you know, direct response stuff and you're doing paid ads and you're crushing it, I wouldn't change anything. I would, I would just keep doing that. The only thing I would say in, in the defense of what the way we build our business is, and, and this is going to change over time. I think we are going to do some more paid things because I think if you never do it, when you do do it, you probably get a fair bit of benefit. But I think if you do it all the time, it kind of waters it down. But to date, we haven't really done any paid ads at all. And our industry is one where on average, companies are spending about 11% of their top level turnover on, on marketing. And for us, that's over a million dollars a year, well over a million dollars a year. And we're spending almost zero and, you know, in a business where the margins are just so tight, like a, like a million dollars, if we were to spend a million dollars a year on marketing, we would go from a company that's comfortably profitable to one that's break even. And it's not something I want to do. So it's, it is an enormous advantage to figure out a way to market a business where it doesn't cost you 10% of your turnover. No, that makes sense. I mean, you've really taken some high leverage, capital efficient marketing approaches that you've learned from the startup world, I would say, and kind of brought them into this industry where that's just not really the way it's done. Yeah. And it's changing too. Like it's, it's really changing the way other people do things because, you know, there's still, 
it's actually a really good industry to craft beer. There's a hell of a lot of innovation. There's a lot of smart people, a lot of really creative people. And, you know, a lot of other people are kind of doing what we do now, which is great. It's really helpful for other people getting into the industry. And if, if we can help other people, it grows the industry as a whole and that grows our business as well. So that's been really good. But then you see other businesses who just take a completely different approach that works equally well for them as well, which is which is cool. And, you know, with, with a lot of creativity and, and, you know, applying some things from other worlds. There's another brewery down here where the guy used to work at Billabong in the surf world and he's brought a lot of that, that stuff across, the branding and the video content and those sort of things. And they're absolutely crushing it as well. And, and you know, I think all of that's great. Yeah, and I mean, through Tiny Seed, we're invested in in one business that through, at really, it's a lot of SEO. They have 425,000 uniques a month that are pretty targeted. And it's like, you know, the founder doesn't want to create content and build a community. He wants to do SEO and he's really good at it, right? And he's in a space where that works. But for you, I mean, for, as someone who's written six books, used to run, you know, a Facebook community, has been really transparent with businesses he's building. Like that's kind of your superpower because that's hard to do. You know, you and I take that for granted, but a lot of people either don't know how or don't feel comfortable doing that. They don't feel comfortable sharing it. It feels weird to them or they're, you know, they're not very good at it. It's hard to create compelling content and you, you've really learned to do that well. Yeah, I think I'm, I'm glad you said I've learned to do that well because, you know, everything's hard and people can learn to do it, that's for sure. Like it might, might be easier for me to write a 2,000 word blog post than it is for the next person. But if you're going to be a founder, you're going to have to figure out some way of marketing a business that works. So you're probably going to end up trying a thousand things like me and and choosing one one that works. But the, the one thing with content that I liked, you know, I, I, when I used to do the SEO stuff, I always used to kind of feel like I had a, way back in the day, I had a Twitter account and I'd do like the, remember like tweet adder and that where you do like the auto follow and you do like the paying for links and this kind of the link farms and this kind of stuff. And it's like, this is all just not good for anybody. Like it's, it's just not, it's just pointless and it, it doesn't make you feel good. And this more organic approach where like the, like the worst case if you're going to do a lot of content that helps other people, the worst thing that's going to happen is you're going to use up a bit of your time. But, you know, as a founder, you've got to spend your time on something and it's going to, you know, there's, something's going to be hit and miss. So the time, I don't really count too much. But you're going to help someone else. Like that's, you know, even if the marketing doesn't work at all, even if it's a complete disaster, which it probably won't be because, you know, if it helps someone else, it ultimately would come back to your brand. But let's say it's not particularly good for you, it's going to help someone else. So it's a good way to spend your time, I think. I want to switch up the conversation. Uh, you tweeted a few days ago when, when you booked this time that we could get together. You said, I just booked for a chat with the Oracle Rob Walling. What should we talk about? So my first question, why are you calling me an Oracle? We got some responses to that. And, and I just kind of wanted to talk through a few things, you know, see where the conversation goes. So Dustin Overbeck said, talk about what life is like post-exit for each of you and what you'd have done differently knowing what you know now. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, well... I'll, I'll talk about that. But the, yeah, the reason I call you the Oracle was because I, when I used to want to be a software startup founder, I mean, I, I do still currently secretly want to be a software startup founder. But uh, when I really wanted to be back in the, in the day, I would just listen to all your stuff and just be like, Rob knows everything. So nah, that's why thanks, I started man. calling you the Oracle. <laughs> uh, what would I do? Yeah, I, you know what? One thing I would do, because this comes up with our current business, like Ours is the kind of business that it's really, really rare. I suppose you'd say the same about software where it's really rare, rare, very difficult to build it past a certain size without selling it. There's not many companies who've been able to build breweries in Australia that are bigger than ours that, that are independent. There's, there's one, 
it's one family owned one that's been around for 150 years so let's not count that because because <laughs> that's a, that's a real really different story um there's, there's another big one that i can think of that's you know had, had a few good investors all the other ones that, that i can think of have got kind of vc money or they've sold or it's just a difficult thing to do it it costs so much money it's hard to get the money together unless you're rich to start with which we weren't so the idea of exits comes up all the time like i don't want to sell this current business mainly because i enjoy doing it but also because i just really worry about what i would do if i wasn't doing this and i felt it a little bit with i felt it when i sold my agency between agency and wp curve like that year was just I was so lost. I didn't know what I was doing. I started so many different things. It was just scary. And and I don't, you know, a lot of people probably look at a founder who's had success and be like, oh, they'll just go and do the same thing again. But I just don't believe that. I, I just think there's, we've had a, an enormous amount of luck with the current business. We had really, really good timing. It's going incredible, incredibly well. I just want to keep doing it. And I do worry what, what I would do if I, if I wasn't doing it. And I had the same thing with WP Curve. It was lucky, really, really, really lucky that I had Black Ops and it turned into a business that could support me and you know loads and loads of other staff. But at the time, I thought it was just going to be a fun little local bar thing, and I wasn't even working in the business at all. And I started doing all kinds of other things. I tried to buy into an accountancy business. I started like these explainer videos. You know, I thought maybe I'd, I'd do my personal content, which ultimately I just didn't feel like I really enjoyed that much when I didn't have anything to talk about because I wasn't working on anything. And I was kind of lost there for six months. And, you know, watching, listening to Josh on your show the other day reminded me again, like, you know, without being offensive to him, it just kind of kind of seems like guys like that should be working on stuff. Not, I just feel like you sell something and you, you're just going to be lost until you stumble across something else. I'm super nervous about that. So I probably wouldn't, I wouldn't want to sell. It wouldn't, and the money wouldn't change anything. I, I, I really think the money would not change anything because I just... I get my enjoyment out of working on these projects and going into work every day and working with people and doing fun new things and that kind of stuff. I don't, you know, I'm not going to go buy a big yacht and spend all day on a yacht. I'm, that's not going to make me happy. So, yeah, I, that what, what I would change or, or what I would consider if you were looking at it would be, I guess, the, the two points. One is that this idea of life-changing money. I, you know, I call you out on that a little bit because I don't think a quarter million dollars is really going to change your life, depending on who you are, but. You know, if it's if it's a million dollars or two million dollars, three million dollars, I I don't really believe that's going to massively change your life. If it's enough to, you know, if it's tens of millions, maybe maybe it will. But then I worry about what you're going to do if you don't have anything productive to work on. So I'd, I'd be thinking about those two things. Yeah, I think that's good advice. Yeah. So for me, I mean, when I use the life changing term, for me, someone who grew up like solidly working class, like not enough money to do a lot of stuff we wanted to as kids. Like money has always been a big concern. And so the first time I ever had like $10,000 in the bank, uh, that was that was a huge like sigh of relief. And the first time I ever had $100,000 in the bank, it was life-changing to me. And it wasn't in the sense that I went out and bought a car. It was that I looked and I said, I could live for a really long time on that. Like I'm not re I'm becoming less and less beholden to anyone else. And, and then the, at the moment when it was like, I have enough money in the bank, sell you know, sell drip, I have enough money in the bank. I don't have to work again. For me, that was a lifelong goal. And maybe that, you know, maybe that, it sounds like that wasn't your lifelong goal, but for me, I wanted to know that I could work on whatever the hell I wanted whenever. And I had been writing software. Yeah, I don't trust myself enough for that to be a good idea. Yeah. And, and I guess that like, I'm like, I'm, relatively type A. I am pretty motivated. I've always worked on things on side projects or main projects since I was a kid. You know, I wrote booklets when I was a kid and sold them and then classified ads. I mean, I'm just, I'm that weirdo. So when I think about 
selling a company and being like, I never have to work again. I always planned to work. I knew I'd do something else. You know, I just didn't know what it would be. But whatever I did, I knew it could be risky and more ambitious because I had the backstop. That's what I mean. Like tiny seed will not pay off for years and years because, you know, investing in startups, like my first investment was in 2011, I believe, in WP Engine. And we got all cashed out in a big kind of private equity round. I believe it was 2018, maybe 2019. I think it was like seven years. And I'm just seeing the first dividend check from a startup that I wrote a check for in 2013. So that's what, seven or eight years, right? But now that it's happening, a lot of it's happening all at once. There's a lot of them selling and there's a lot of them starting to kick off dividends, the ones that decide to do that. So that when I look at, at Tiny Seed, I mean, I literally took a, I'll just call it a stipend. Anar and I both did for the past two and a half years. It was not something I could have done if I didn't have money in the bank. You know, I, I couldn't have started Tiny Suit or I would have needed to been like kind of single living in an apartment. I couldn't live with my family, you know, with the house that we have in, in Minneapolis without the money. For me, it's made a difference. I got to be honest. And it's not that I buy, like talk to anyone who knows me. I don't buy stupid stuff. I don't buy expensive crap. You know, I mean, I do, I have a nice car now, but I bought it used. I buy $200 watches, even though I want like the $2,000 watches, you know. You know, your phone tells the time, right? Yeah, no, exactly. <laughs> exactly. No, but I like watches because it's the, it's the only thing I can accessorize, right? It's like, I don't, I don't get that. Word. Yeah. But yeah, you. I mean, you might be a little bit different, like like the, the finance side of it. And and it, you know, it sounds like whatever you sold Drip for was a lot more than I sold WP Care for. But but that that aside, the second part of the equation where you've got something else to move on to sounds like that fell into place for you very nicely. You know, whether that was by by design or or by the fact that you were kind of in the position where that you were very happy doing this new thing with your time, and that's perfect. I just wonder if. Like for me, if I wasn't doing this and my fallback option was just kind of writing books and doing like the entrepreneurial community, that's what I thought I would do after WP Care. But then when I did it, I was like, I don't enjoy this. I'm just one guy out of a sea of millions doing this stuff. It's, it's, it's not really for me. I don't really like it. I enjoyed telling stories about stuff I was working on, not just becoming, you know, a kind of full-time business coach guy. I hated that. But yeah, the, 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 money, the money stuff's interesting. I know when, you know, I, I didn't grow up with a lot of money either. I know when... Just thinking about this the other day, like when I went on my honeymoon, I think I wrote this about in one of my books. I read that Think and Grow Rich book and it said, you know, write down, state your goal. And I, and I wrote down $100,000. Like I wanted to turn over $100,000. This was 2000 and when was this? When did I get married? I've, I've been unmarried since, so I've forgotten the date. It's not no longer as important as it once was. <laughs> it was probably uh, 2010 or something like that. Anyway, it was, it was, it was a while ago, maybe 2009. 2008, 2009, and, and the number I wrote down was $100,000. And it was like, this was, to me, a very, very big number. Like, if I could if I could have my business turn over $100,000, that would be like the goal, the end of the book goal, you know, where you state this goal that sounds impossible that you achieve and it changes your life. And, you know, our, like our business last year turned over over $10 million, and I didn't even notice. Like, we, like I'm doing a presentation for investors now because we're raising more money. And I went back through the finances because we do financial year, we don't do calendar year, but I went back through the calendar year finances and we passed the milestone of $10 million and I was just reflecting on that. I was like, my God, like I used to be excited about $100,000 and now I passed $10 million in revenue and I don't even notice. It's, it's crazy. I think you just, you kind of just get used to whatever the number is and you get used to whatever the thing is. Like, I, you know, I, I might be living in an awesome suburb now, but I'm just used to it. I don't, I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know that I'm any happier. 
Well, there's two things. There's the arrival fallacy, right? Which is thinking that you're going to the next, I I will have arrived once I have a hundred thousand or a million or once I've launched this company or once I make it right. And it's a, it's a fallacy because you do, you get there and then you wind up looking for, if you're ambitious, you wind up looking for the next thing. And I've, I've come to grips with that and I feel fine with it now. I think when I was younger, it, it rattled me more that like, why am I never happy? Well, it's like, well, you're, you are happy for a month or two and then know that you're going to do the next thing. Don't kid yourself that you'll actually have arrived because you'll arrive for a month or two and then do something, want to do something else. It's sort of hard to, it's, it's hard to just not fall into the trap of being like, well, what's the point of <laughs> kind of achieving something if you're going to get there and not, you know, not actually arrive? Yeah. I mean, I think it's different for everybody. I think for some people, it, it is that safety. Like I think I'll, I'll give my career as an example because I'm an expert on it because I lived through it. But it was like, I remember being like, I just want to have a job writing software that supports me. And boy, if I had that, that would be amazing because I just want to write code all the time. And I got that job. And you know what? It was really cool for about six months. Then I was like, huh, kind of bored. So now I wanted a job where I could work from home. And that was, this was in 2000, right? 2001, but really before work from home was a thing. And then sure enough, I was able to work from home. And then it was like, well, now I want to, I want a software product, you know, revenue. And that took me five or six years to get to. And then it was um, enough that I could quit my job and, you know, on and on and on, right? And then enough that I never have to work again. These were the milestones. Early on, I would achieve them and think, man, then I'm going to be happy forever. What I realized later on is I'm not going to be happy forever, but A, I will be happy for a short term and B, I'm making progress along the way. Like it's doing something that I think, you know, helps improve our life as a family. It helps improve the lives of those around us. You know, if you start a company and, and employ people, because otherwise it's like, well, why should I even start a company then? You know, if I'm never going to be happy or I'm never going to have arrived, but it's like, there are reasons to start companies, right? To give back to the community, to create value for people, to create wealth for investors or wealth, maybe the wrong money, but you know, I don't know. I think everybody has their reasons. Legacy is another thing. I've started talking about that recently. Like I'm, I'm getting up there in the, uh, in, in the years here. And I do look ahead and think, Hey, so, you know, someday I'm to die like what do i want the world or the startup space to think about me you know what do i want people to say when i'm gone like what do i want to leave people with what is the legacy that i'm creating and it's way too early if, if looking back at my 29 year old self you know it's like slow down like just figure out how to make enough revenue you know that you can you can quit your day job that you hate so much but i don't know just because i had didn't arrive at these steps doesn't mean that it didn't leave me better off and and happier me personally like i've been happier longer term at each of these steps than if i was still working that same w2 <laughs> full-time job back in 2000 yeah, and and I guess happier in between if you know that you, you're not going to get this big burst of happiness at a certain point. Yeah, I want I want to ask you. So not so much legacy. Legacy isn't really something I really ever think about. But when when I've heard you talk about the sale of drip, it sounded like, and I've been through this as well. Like it sounded like there was just nights where you just stay awake at night and just think, man, this you're leaving so much money on the table here. Like if this goes to zero, you, you could have been in a position to have multiple millions of dollars and now you're in a position where you've got zero and you're just not going to be able to live with that. Is, is that accurate? That was part of the thinking? There was thinking, yeah, which I regret a little bit. I mean, that was going to be my question. Like, like because, the, because the downside is you see the people who, who push through that and end up building something way bigger than they could have imagined. Like, do you look at that and be like, you know, maybe I should have pushed through that? You know, so here's the thing. I have never, never regretted selling drip. Like I've never woken up a day and thought, oh my gosh, I wish I was still running that. I wish that was still with my company because it just, it was just, it was, it was a moment in my life. And 
it was stressful. I didn't sell because of the stress. I sold, that was a part of it. There were all these components, you know, it was like the moment it was like, huh, I never have to work again, huh? And again, never have to work again in my parlance is I can work on whatever I want because that's really what I wanted to do, right? And so there was a stress component. There was a that component. I think that when you ask me about, you know, what I wish I'd done differently or what I regret, yeah, I think I stressed out too much. I was a little bit of a um, sky is falling person mentally, you know, and I'm not that way anymore. But I, I would wake up and say, yeah, this could go to zero. All my entire life that I've put into this thing will go to nothing. But, you know, that's really, really unrealistic that that would have happened. Like, even if there was a massive recession, even if competitors continued to to crank on us, even if we got on blacklist, which we did now and again, it wasn't going to go to zero. It maybe it slowed down. The bigger the bigger concern was that at the pace it was growing, it was worth a healthy multiple. And if you flatline, like a lot of entrepreneurs ride it over the top, if you flatline or you're growing at 10% a year or something, the business just isn't worth that much anymore. So that was a concern for me. But frankly, it really wasn't very healthy nor helpful for my mental health for me to be thinking about that all the time. Just wasn't. Have you reflected on how, like, how big, you know, you hear these stories of, and sorry to bring this up, it might, it might feel like you're getting no, grilled, but I am curious because you, you hear these entrepreneurs who, like, they, they, did, they go through these struggles really early on and they're building these companies where they think, I mean, almost any big company you think about, you could think about like this, like Facebook, the, the biggest, you know, I think there was that point where they could have sold for, what hundred billion dollars or, or no sorry what was it a billion dollars yeah something like that and at the time there was there was no one could foresee that it was going to be as big as it is now like the size of this thing is just blows your mind how much attention it's got I don't surely Mark Zuckerberg couldn't even see how big it is now right so like do you think with because what you were doing building emails like emails is still so relevant like with the stuff that's going on they just seem more relevant than ever like these email companies seem to be going better and better and better like how like do you ever reflect on how big this thing could have gotten I mean what's interesting is I've watched for you know a year and a half when I worked there how big it got right because with the venture injection of of lead pages they had raised 38 million bucks it started growing even faster than when when I was running it and so I don't know the revenue today but I obviously when I when I was working there I did and so I saw that business tri- you know triple the next year and triple again or whatever whatever it was it was fast growth and you know it's it's an interesting question, but dude, I don't really want to run a big company. Like I I don't want to manage fifty people or a hundred people. I don't. I had no desire to be the CEO of a hundred person company. I'm very much more a starter, you know. And if you look at you look at what like all these years with Microconf, producer Xander has helped us for seven years now, and he got interviewed on a podcast, and and the guy said, "Wow, you're going to do seven or eight events this year. You do these in person. How big's your staff?" And Xander's like, "It's just me and the founders." And that's it. And that's how I like it, you know? And, and we we hire some contractors and stuff. And same thing, like the tiny seed team is just Tracy, ANR, and myself. And and obviously we will hire, you know, we will get more people and stuff. But to me, I'm I'm invigorated by building, not by being on a large team. It's that much of a detriment. And so one could argue, okay, so maybe you needed to grow up more and then hire someone to manage everybody. And then you could just be the founder who's like doing stuff and not report, no one reports to you. And yes, I have heard of founders. I think Dharmesh Shah did that with HubSpot. And I think maybe Jason Cohen's in that situation with WP Engine. Well, uh, your interview with Rand Fishkin was kind of like that, but almost like the the downside of that approach. And exactly right. And that's what I've heard. So I hear you. I don't know. Would it be, would it have been interesting to take it further? Yeah. Do I feel like I made a mistake selling? No, 
because I'm so happy with what has happened since then in my life. Like I would, I would be stagnant right now. I, I, I wouldn't have progressed and I circled back and doubled down so much on this podcast that I didn't have the time to focus on that, on microconf and then to launch tiny seed. And you gotta be honest, drip and all the apps before it were things that I enjoyed doing. And, and they were definitely, you know, a means to building a better life for myself and my family. Microconf, Tiny Seed, and this podcast really are so much more than that for me. Like they are my life's work, if you think about it. You know, I've been doing them for more than a decade. And I mean, the podcast has always been free, even when it wasn't, we didn't have a conference, we didn't have any way to make money off of it. We were just doing it because I enjoyed it so much. And same with Microconf, we basically broke even the first few years we were doing it. I was essentially working for free on it. We have to charge to pay for stuff. So that's a long answer, but yeah, that's that's how I think about it, I think. Of course, if I had stuck around another couple of years and sold it for 10 times more, yeah, I would like to have more money, of course. But there's a difference between that and like regretting. You know, I don't regret that I didn't do that. Right, you feel like you got the balance right where, where you've, you know, you've gotten out at a time where it's a life-changing amount and you've been able to do other things and it's, it's worth it. That's how it feels anyways. It's hard to know. It is hard to know. Yeah, it's something something I think about because we because we you know this business that we've got is, God, it's it's difficult. It can be really difficult. Like we at the, when the COVID thing hit, like I you know it, we've been doing it for six years. It's it's been a long time and it's big now. You know we've got sixty staff. We've got four four or three sites about to be four. It's a, not a small thing. Very complicated to run a physical products business. There's always so much going on. And when COVID hit, it was like. We'd just gotten to the point where things were going well and we literally just sat around with me and my two co-founders and we're just like, you know, I don't know what to do. Like we had these things on our agenda to talk about. It's like, well, there's no, we tried to talk about some of them, but literally our, like our, our three tap rooms and all of our customers' businesses were shut down overnight. And, and it was like, well, there's nothing we can talk about that's going to help at all. We're probably going to go out of business at this point. You know, we're going to lose the money of our 600 investors. We're going to lose all of the money we've put in. It's just this, all this is going to go to zero. So we've been, we've been, and, and the crazy thing is that in the 12 months of 2020, we grew by 100%, which we'd done every year the previous six years. So we maintained our really high growth, which is tough with the physical products business. We became profitable and very comfortably profitable. And, you know, our brand went to a whole new level. So it ended up being the best year we'd ever had by a mile, which, which we obviously couldn't predict at the time. But, you know, I feel like at least, at least I've been to the brink where it's like, yeah, I know what this feels like if, if I'm about to lose everything. But I, I also think that, you know, selling to me is in a way a bit of a failure as well. And I won't just talk about breweries because I've got a question for you as well. But with the breweries that I think of, you know, there are success stories where the breweries have become profitable, listed on the stock market for hundreds of millions of dollars and then sold that's a great success story as far as I'm, I'm concerned. But the ones that sold, sold, you know, these breweries start as independent breweries because they want to compete against the major multinational corporations, you know, because the independent breweries don't feel like the majors are doing a good job. They don't feel like they're making really good beer. They don't think they're community friendly, all that stuff, and they're fighting against them. And what almost always happens is they end up selling to them and then at the end of that say, oh, you know, it's been a good run, you know, this company's the right fit for us and all of this kind of shit. It's like, well... That's bullshit. You're selling to them either to get rich, which to me I don't think is is the normal reason. I think that the normal reason is you've just gotten to the point where you can't do this anymore financially or maybe psychologically, probably to a 50-50 in that. And to me that's a failure. So my question to you is like I've always wanted to be a software startup entrepreneur and the dream really is to start a business 
it be profitable, it not be so stressful that you have to sell it, just make money and create software. There's a, there must be tens of thousands of people with more that listen to this podcast who want to do exactly that. Is that even a realistic dream for people? To build a business and sell it? No, to not sell it. Oh, to not sell it. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I, I will say for the record, like I don't view building a business and selling it as a failure. I think you and I don't, don't view that the same way. I think that building a business for long term, especially a software company, absolutely. I mean, most people don't. What's interesting is most people don't. They see the example of of Basecamp or let's say MailChimp and they say, you know, you can bootstrap this business and I'm going to run it forever. And that's cool. But but that's the thing is that, you know, Basecamp is so often brought up as an example of how to do this, but they're, they're just a, such a random, like they were literally the first people to do it. Like, is, is it even something you can do? Like with your decision to sell, how much how much of that was motivated by the fact that there's so much competition out there, there's so much pressure on prices and all of that. Like, could you even keep doing this without getting VC money, which introduces a whole new level of complication? Like, like how much of those things? Like, could you have just kept running it and been comfortable and happy and profitable and just done that forever? Yeah, we could have if that was, you know, if I didn't have aspirations beyond it, for sure. I was considering, I mean, one of the other things that I might, if I had any regrets or I would have done differently is I think we were a little undercapitalized. Like I would have, I should have raised an angel round. I would have not have raised venture capital. I have no desire to go on that treadmill, but I, I probably could have raised 300 to 500 grand pretty early on and at a good valuation. And that would have made things so much less stressful. You know, I saw once we got acquired how, how much money actually helps make you less stressed because you can just pay for problems to go away. And so that was one thing I would have done, but absolutely could drip. I mean, drip was growing. It was bootstrap growing and profitable. There is no doubt that we could have, and yeah, there was competition, but we were, I don't even remember what our growth rate was when we sold, but it was 10, 10% a month, 15%. I mean, it was, it was healthy growth still. And are there plateaus? Yeah. You know, you can look at, at anybody on the, the bare metrics, public metrics thing, where you go to demo.baremetrics.com, right? Is bare metrics, actual metrics, but like convert kits on there and you can see their plateaus, but you can build a great SaaS business and they're highly profitable, right? At, especially like growth is expensive and growth, the faster you grow, usually the less profitable you are. But once you start to slow that growth down, that's when a SaaS company, even at scale with so 20, 50, 100 employees can throw off 30 to 50% net profit, right? Gross margins, 80 to 90 and net profit can be that. So yeah, if you built a business at 10 million bucks, I mean, do we know examples of it? Absolutely. I mean, we can c- come to MicroConf. You do you know? know examples of it? Because the other piece of that is is the, the funding piece. Like I remember when I used to listen to your podcast and, and other podcasts in this world, like I didn't know anything about raising money and I still never, ever raise money until we started Black Ops because we just couldn't afford to build a brewery ourselves. But like, could you do this without raising money? Because I think there's probably a lot of people who listen to this who, who don't even know where to start and don't want to get into that world at all. Absolutely. And most people don't. I mean, we do, we do a state of independent SaaS survey through MicroConf and we just put the report out. And of all the people in that survey running SaaS companies with revenue, I believe it was like 12, 13% had raised some type of funding. So the other 87 you know, percent had not. And yes, I absolutely know people doing seven and low eight figures who have bootstrapped and who are shockingly profitable. Again, 40, 50% net margins. And the way that you do it though, see, you can move faster with funding. 
And the way that you do, if you don't raise funding, you just move a little slower, you know, and you have to be happy with that. That was something I always struggled with is I was in so much of a hurry. <laughs> I wanted to get big, get faster, not at VC pace, because I didn't want to do it recklessly. It was still organic. But I was like, why am I going? I want to be at a million dollars. I want to be at two million. I want to be at five million, you know, and I was a little more impatient than perhaps I, I don't know if it was healthy or not. But yeah, absolutely, man. I'm the same with that. I like I'm, I'm fearful of no growth because that actually happened to us with with WP Curve. We um we didn't really have any plateaus at all until we got to about a million dollars in recurring annual revenue, uh, mostly recurring. We had some one-off stuff, but it was almost all recurring. And then we didn't really grow from that point on, and that's that's scary. Like in that case, it was a profitable business. It was comfortable. We didn't have to do a lot of work to keep it going, so it was it was great. But the idea of a business. I mean, slowing growth maybe is is not as scary, but the idea of a business stopping growing to me is super scary. Yeah, it is. It is because it affects it affects a lot of things, right? And I think I think to come back to kind of put a pin in it because we're we're running long. But when I think about can you build a SaaS company and bootstrap it to profitability and then just run it for ten or twenty years? Absolutely. I mean, there, there's no doubt. And I know a bunch. Of, again, if you come to a microconf, get in microconf, connect for folks listening. If you want to meet meet other folks doing that, the Interesting thing, though, is if you want to do that, great. And that's actually one of the reasons we started Tiny Seed, right, is that you can take Tiny Seed money, which is you're still mostly bootstrapped. I mean, taking $120,000 is really not. It doesn't change. Most businesses, you're doing 20, 20 to 40K a month and you take 120K. It just doesn't actually change the business that much. So the money doesn't change it. But we support companies both that want to run it for the long term and pull dividends out or companies that do, you know, eventually want to sell. A lot of founders think they want to run it long term and and that's cool. And you can do that. But what, what you'll find is, let's say running this business and it's doing $2 million a year and a SaaS company, and it's throwing off, you know, let's say 33% net margin, right? What is that? About $670,000 a year in net profit. That's awesome, right? It's a great business. You could sell that business if you were growing. You could sell that business for about in the realm of $10 million, eight to 12, I would say. 12 may be high, but let's say eight to 10 million. So if you really want to run it and that's your thing, then obviously do that. But, you know, it'll take you 15 years to make that much money off that business as it stands. Now, obviously, it'll probably grow some more, you'll make more money than that over time. So it won't truly be 15 years. But that's the point where a lot of SaaS founders find themselves and then they realize, oh, I thought I wanted to run this forever. But I can now have that, you know, I'm a little either you get tired of it, it's stressful, there's competition, you don't have the passion for it anymore. Or maybe it's just like, man, my wife really my husband or wife really wants me to It'd be great to take six months off, spend more time with my family. And that's, I think, the decision point that some founders find themselves in. And that's, it's a hard decision. You know, it depends on who you are and what your goals are. But that's how I think about it. Yeah, that's a good point. I think the kind of wanting to do something different is just a huge thing. If you're an, entre- you're an entrepreneur founder, you're, you're attracted to the idea of doing new things. And that's something I've always struggled with is like after I do something for, I don't know, sometimes it could be weeks, it could be months, it could be years, but eventually, you know, I just get sick of it. Thankfully, it hasn't happened. You know, I kind of have ups and downs with motivation with my current business, but it hasn't really happened with this business. Maybe as you get older a little bit, you kind of lose <laughs> lose a little bit of that hustle. Maybe that's what's going on. I think there's hustle, but I also think maybe you you get wiser and you start doing things that you think will make you happier long term rather than doing them perhaps for short term gain, for monetary gain, for, oh, it's just a great business idea, so I'm going to do it. And then you get in two years in and you're like, it was a great business idea, but now I don't care about the business anymore. You didn't, you didn't start a brewery for that. You started it because you're passionate about it, you know, and it feels like you're living a pretty good life, man. I'm, I'm uh, super happy for you just having watched you on this journey for all these years. Thanks. Yeah, I feel incredibly grateful. It's really, 
really amazing. You know, I kind of miss this online startup world a little bit, but you've given me some hope because one day when I when I sell my brewery or, or get someone else to run it, I can get back into my dreams of being a software startup founder and, and <laughs> come to MicroConf. That's awesome. You are the Dan Norris on Twitter and folks can check out your new book, Compound Marketing, as well as Seven Day Startup. If they haven't read that, I've read both of them, really enjoy it. And if folks want to drink some beer, Black Hops Brewing. Is that is Black Hops only available in Australia or do you sell in other countries as well? Yeah, just Australia. We, we've got a very, very healthy local market of beer drinkers in Australia, so there's no need to go outside of Australia. Yeah, totally. Thanks again, man, for coming on the show. Really appreciate it. Yeah, I enjoyed it. Thanks, mate. Good to talk to you. Thank you again to Dan Norris for coming on the show. I really enjoyed that conversation. I hope you did as well. I think it's about time to wrap this one up and I'll be back in your earbuds again next Tuesday morning.